This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us. I'm Marisol Lebron. I'm an associate professor of feminist studies and critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Oh, and my environmentally friendly lights just turned off. Um, but um, I want to thank you all for joining us for today's event, uh, Learning as Rebellion, Resisting Right-Wing Attacks on Higher Ed, sponsored by Haymarket Books and NACLA. Um, Basically, I'm going to give us a kind of framing for the event today, and then we'll um, I'll introduce the speakers and we'll launch into the questions. Uh, remember that there will be a Q&A at the end, so feel free to get those questions ready and put them in the chat function in YouTube. Across the Americas, uh, conservative politicians have set their sights on schools as key ideological battlegrounds. And when vulnerable students and scholars are targeted uh, for their identities and or politics, universities often fail to protect them for fear of alienating donors or powerful political allies. What can we do to fight back and protect one another? Today's event is inspired by uh, Logia Garcia Peña's amazing book, Community as Rebellion, a syllabus for surviving academia as a woman of color. Um, you can get this right now on Haymarket, I believe, for a 40% discount. So check it out if you haven't already. It's an incredible, um, incredibly powerful book. Uh, so today's conversation is going to explore the recent wave of attacks and um, on uh, higher ed and uh, discuss what it would look like uh, to create liberatory spaces of learning and um, and education. So uh, our speakers for today, of course, Lorie Garcia-Pena uh, is here with us today. Uh, Luciana Brito will also be joining us and Gio Mar. So I'm really excited to be in conversation with you all. So. I just want to say a couple of quick words about this um, book before having uh, the opportunity to turn it over to Lohia and tell us a little bit about the impetus behind uh, writing it um, and what you hope to um, achieve with the book, right? What do you want people to take away from the book? But uh, reading this book was an incredibly um, powerful experience for me, and I felt really honored um, to be let into this book, right? And in the book, what Lorgia does is really give us uh, a window into an honest treatment of the challenges faced by radical scholars, by uh, minoritized scholars in higher education, and the challenges they are faced by vulnerable scholars in higher education. One of the things that, and we'll get into this during the Q&A, but one of the things I really respected and appreciated about this book was the dedication to providing an unflinching look at what's really going on in higher ed and really resisting a romantic narrative 
about higher education at the same time fighting for these spaces of connection and camaraderie and these possibilities for rebellion that exist in these spaces in spite of the violence that academia and the university perpetuates in people's lives. So I'm deeply, deeply um, grateful to you, Lorja, for writing this book, for sh- for letting us into these really intimate stories that you provide um, of, of your experience as a woman of color, as a Black Latina, uh, uh, navigating higher ed. So I'm, I'm really grateful to you for sharing these stories uh, and writing this book. But I wanted to um, turn it over to you to just give us a little context on uh, why you wrote the book and, and what do you want people to get from it? I can get my button to unmute. Thank you so much, Marisol, for, for this lovely intro. And good afternoon, everyone from Boston. I'm so, so honored to be here. I want to Thank again, Marisol Lebron and, and Heather Gise for the initiative. And of course, Hey Market and NACLA for supporting my work. NACLA has been a sort of home for me as a writer and as a public scholar for almost a decade now. And it feels really incredibly fitting to, to have this moment today to be in conversation with Latin American scholars and NACLA contributors. So again, thank you, Luciana and Gio for joining us and for your generosity in reading this little book. Um, I share this in the book, but um, and I have talked about it often, um, but I really began to write Community as Rebellion, not as a book, but as a letter to my graduate students uh, who are all women of color and, and queer people. Um, and I wanted to share with them in what I wish had been shared with me as I embarked in, on this profession. In part because I believe many of us are socialized in grad school to believe academia is a benevolent profession and that we must give our whole being to it, even at the expense of our mental and physical health. Um, And in part because I do believe that what we do within and outside a university as scholars and as writers and as teachers has incredible potential to enact positive changes in the world. So I began to write... um, almost as a rant, Um, I had had attended a conference in 2000, at the end of 2018. Um, And in that conference, I felt ostracized, silenced, uh, I along other other young scholars, as as we were trying to change some of the structural ways in which conferences work, right? Where there is a very strict format where disciplines are privileged and where interdisciplinary and non-traditional work is kind of pushed to the sides. And so we, a group of, of, of women, Charina Mayoposo, Beth Manley and I, sat down after the conference and we're like, we're going to try and do something else. And we put together a symposium on Dominican studies that was radically different that centered the work of young uh, scholars, particularly grad students and and, um, young professors. And we noticed the difference. We noticed the difference not not only in the quality of the work that was being produced, but in the level of joy and happiness. Um, And what was different was simply how, how we did it, the way in which we center the whole uh, lives of people um, and the way in which community was really at the center of how we did and how we share the, the work. So that was that was really inspiring to me. And it 
it, I'm a hopeful person in general, and so it kind of fed um, a radical hope for the for the kinds of pos- the possibilities that collaborative community center environments can have um, in terms of the impact they can have on people and on ideas. Um, and so the, the the impetus for the book was to share not only what the challenges are currently in academia and in the university as a as a site of everything we know, right? Neoliberal, racist, you name it, but also the kind of the possibilities that there are if we if we actually do the work of centering people, of uh, centering collaborations, of thinking of ourselves as part of a sum rather than as isolating um, creators of knowledge. Um, and so the, the idea of, of communities rebellion is, is simply an invitation to rethink um, how we can create together, how we can make knowledge, how we can change systems, um, and how we can fight back uh, against the kind of um, structures that the university continues to impose, particularly on those of us who are minoritized and, as, and racialized as, as women of color. Um, and the impact that that has on our lives um, every day. So that was the, that was the thought behind writing this. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to turn it over to uh, Luciana and then um, Gio, but I thought we could start off the conversation just uh, talking about what do you all see as the most pressing issues um, confronting scholars right now? How do we make sense of these? Uh, what are these right wing attacks? What are you seeing? And how do we make sense of what's going on? So, Luciana, if we could start with you and then Gio. Okay, thank you, Marisol. Thank you, you guys, for inviting me for, you know, participate in this conversation. It's such a really important moment to discuss how extreme right you know, attacks has been affecting academia. Um, of course, I will talk about my, my experience in Brazil. Um, the system is a little bit different of the United States. So most of our universities are public universities, are federal universities. So these universities depend on um, uh, federal money. Um, since the beginning of the 2000s, we start to apply um, racial quota systems in Brazilian universities for students. Um, so in all public universities, the racial, the quota systems for black students um, and indigenous students has 10 years. And the sensation that I have now is that right on our time, our moment, things are falling apart in Brazil. Um, so in terms of professors, before the, the quota system, uh, we had less black students in Brazilian universities than South Africa during the apartheid regime. And in terms of professors, now we have we had less than 
of black professors. Now we have a 20, I got the number, we have a 23.6 black professors, uh, percent of black professors in the whole Brazilian public university. So we are a few people. And the idea that Loja brings in the book about build alliances, sincere uh, and affectional um, alliances is really important since talk about the issues that we are talking about today is really complex. Um, the money for research is, is, research is even smaller, so the ones who suffer more for them receiving financing support for research are the black professors especially black women. Um, in the last, I think the last year, year, the last year, this federal government cut 70%, in 70%, the money for financing public universities. So if you are a black person, especially a black woman in a, in a department, and the university has a small amount of money to share the research with those professors, black women, other researchers who will not receive financial support. And we are the ones who are do, dealing with these um, students who are, who they um, permanently see universities are threatened by poverty, especially after the pandemic. So we are the professors who are devising these students who have less fellowships and who have less uh, um, recognition from our peers because of the type of research and courses that we are offering. Things related to LGBT community or the colonial thoughts or, or, or the colonizing the curriculum. So we feel that it's, that's why I described this feeling in the beginning, that right on the moment that we finally enter in the university with the uh, implementation of the programs for black students and black professors uh, is the moment that the extreme right rise in Brazil, especially because of this entrance of black people in universities, both as professors and as students, because like in the United States, and I think the most of the countries, the university is this white towel that, you know, should not, should be assessed by a small elite of each country, like some ministers of education are saying in Brazil that the universities are space for the Brazilian elites. It's not for the sons of the doormans, like a Ministry of Education um, said last year. So this is this is where are my first thoughts after reading the book. And um, I feel really uh, comfortable to associate this um, reality that I have been thinking about in Brazil with this reality that you guys are describing, that you are describing Loja in the United States, especially as a black academic. And, and, and more importantly, the amount of work that we do 
and this feeling of carrying these students and the universities on arm backs. So it was really important to me uh, really your thoughts and don't have this feeling of being, of being thinking about this by myself, this is stage of loneliness. So thank you. Um, yes, thanks again to everyone for, for setting this up, to Marisol, to Nakla, and, you know, of course, to Haymarket for hosting. Thank you so much to Loria for this book. Um, it um, is really just a, a masterful uh, and powerful indictment of the university. And also, and I think this touched on something Marisol already said, also a, a call to engage in that struggle for that space, right? I mean, in neither of these pieces, I think, ever falls away, right? The, the critique of the space the coloniality of, of university power, um, the logics that it, that permeate it and, and that it reproduces, um, and also the idea that, of course, that doesn't mean abandoning, you know, this struggle, abandoning this space. Um, and this, which I'll circle, I think, back around to is exactly why the right is targeting it, right? Because it's a crucial space that needs to be contested, that needs to be fought for. And so, uh, you know, you know, I just say, at the beginning, that one of the things I love so much about the book is the way that it keeps the both the potentialities and the modalities of community resistance just front and center, right? Which is, I think, a very difficult task amid all of the, um, you know, the diagnosis of these structural dynamics. Um, and it's something that, you know, of course, it was not a book that was, you know, written particularly for me as a person, let's put it that way, but which resonated in, in many ways with, um, with my personal experience, but also with things that I've seen, witnessed, dynamics, logics, and in particular, the way that the logics of austerity and white supremacy have worked together uh, in recent years to produce false scarcity, competitiveness, individualism. Um, and, and, and it's a really great account of those things. And I'll just say a couple words about, I think, um, the way that I see, you know, what we could roughly call neoliberalism and the neoliberalization of the university um, as an economic process, but, you know, uh, in the goal, you know, of which is always a political one. And I want to foreground that this economic process is a political process in multiple uh, ways. Um, again, these are things that are laid out very, you know, eloquently and, and, you know, and beautifully in the book. But for example, first of all, the ways in which by neoliberalization, we mean the restructuring of the university, the cutting of public budgets to public universities, the cutting of all funding to all universities, and the way that this uh, creates an, an opening for, first of all, private money. What does private money mean in a university context? It means two things very importantly, you know, uh, one of which um, is precisely the powerful veto that private funders, you know, begin to have and have begun to have over um, you know, even public university officials, even private university, uh, you know, professors, um, and over, you know, the, you know, the, the, what we refer to often as, as academic freedom. The fact that at a certain point, if private donors are withdrawing millions of dollars, um, your, you know, academic freedom is worth far less to the university than, you know, than that, than that money. Um, but this private money, this injection of private money that goes along with budget cuts also means something very crucial, which is the propping up of right wing thought within the universities, right? Um, dark money funded think tanks, institutes, uh, you know, that fund things like Charles Murray's speaking tours that give it the sort of veil of academic rigor in science and, and allow and encourage and in fact provoke debates around academic freedom when what we're talking about is again right wing dark money being sort of, you know, plowed into universities. 
Um, a second piece I think that's crucial is adjunctification, right? The decline in tenure and tenure track faculty, um, the rise in, you know, uh, in adjunct faculty. Um, but crucial to this, I think, is the fact that this is not just about money and economics, it's about power, right? Because adjunct faculty um, and precarious faculty are faculty that are easily removed, easily dismissed. Um, there are so many cases of people who have been attacked, like, uh, you know, like, like some of us have, um, but who, as you know, by virtue of being adjuncts or temporary faculty, the scandal doesn't last. The outrage doesn't last. They're not actually fired. They're simply not renewed and they disappear, you know, from the university as a result. And there are many, many cases like that. Adjunctification is just as much about power as it is about saving money. It's about creating a docile uh, class of academic uh, workers. Um, Thirdly, and I think this is a crucial one that, that Lorca shows, you know, and demonstrates very well in the book, is this question of false scarcity, right? Um, which creates situations in which you're you're cutting all of the tenured faculty lines, the stable faculty lines. And so at the same moment that you're trying to sort of radically transform and diversify and decolonize the university, you're trying to do so in a situation that's inherently competitive, right? In which, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people who all do great work who all think of themselves as part of a collective endeavor are nevertheless competing against each other. Um, and, you know, again, this resonates with my experience where I find myself feeling frustrated um, at being pushed out of the university and not able to get back in and feel tempted to write, feel that toward your own comrades, right, who are, you know, still in the university or getting jobs in the university, when the reality is that this is a structural phenomenon that you know, in which neoliberalism creates and recreates its own logics by driving and dividing people against uh, one another in incredibly uh, you know, dangerous ways. Um, if we're talking about neoliberalism, we always have to remember that this is like a radical, right, a radical hyper form of capitalism. And we never want to forget that because we don't want to sort of fight the extreme case while overlooking the underlying structural, you know, phenomena. And I say this and maybe, you know, uh, say it in, in a bit of a belabored way, um, because again, I think this circles back to the important question of what it is that we want to do with the university, right? We don't want to forget that this is a white supremacist colonial capitalist institution. At the same time, we do want to be able to understand that what's been happening in recent decades has been um, dramatically, a dramatic sort of amplification of those dynamics, um, an overt right-wing attempt to intervene, attack, get rid of left-wing and critical and radical uh, scholars, particularly of color, particularly women, and you know to do so for a reason. Again, I think universities are a soft target for the right um, because they can pr provoke these kinds of controversies and you know um, and push people onto a kind of back foot that prevents them from fighting back. And I think that just say, uh, you know, a couple of things. What I think the implications are for what this means. I think we need to have a more nuanced and complicated understanding of what academic freedom means. It's not a concept I think that's actually served us very well recently when we don't understand it as a very uh, sort of radically material phenomenon, as a phenomenon that's never been absolute, that's always been used in very selective ways. And here I think about um, here in Philadelphia, you pen me of the case of Amy Wax and a white supremacist law professor um, who is finally, it looks like, being disciplined um, but who is herself appealing to and being defended on the grounds of academic freedom. Um, but, you know, we need to think, I think, in, in, in far stronger terms than that, because here is a professor who is actively 
every day harming her own students, harming her students of color. You know, she said that her own black law students are not able to compete with the white students, are not smart enough, are not good enough. And you can't, you know, we, we can't uh, accept a concept of academic freedom that will simply defend that kind of logic as well, that kind of rhetoric, which resonates, of course, with what the university itself, um, you know, you know, proliferates uh, all the time. Part of that means that we need to think about academic freedom, freedom materially, but also collectively, right? Academic freedom for whom? Whose voices matter, right? When we're talking about speakers, right-wing speakers coming to campus and you try to defend that on the grounds of freedom, a lot of people respond by saying, no, we're, we're, we as other students that you haven't been listening to, we have students of color or, you know, radical students or, or, you know, whatever, also demand a right to intervene in that space, to be taken seriously as part of that community. And I think here we begin to sort of move toward precisely uh, the you know this great you know you know act you know sort of material sort of struggle concept that Lorde has given us, which is community as rebellion, right? You know the way in which these are bound together, the way in which they move, um, and allow us to think in broader terms about what that community is academically. That insists that we think about what the community is beyond the walls of academia and the way that the two are necessarily and always in connection in conjunction with uh, one another and our struggles can't be limited. Um, and here, uh, you know, just to say, you know, two very, you know, concrete things and cases to keep in mind. One, of course, is, um, is Chile, right? And the fact that neoliberalism and fascism have always been genetically fused from the very beginning, right? And I think we know that from the origins of the Chilean neoliberal experiment. But we also know that, you know, um, in conjunction with what it is that the entirety of Chilean society today, but in particular students are demanding about sort of reforming and transforming what education should look like in a non-fascist way, right? So here we see both the, again, both the diagnosis of this fascism and its embeddedness in education, but also the potentiality of that community and resistance. Um, and secondly, and just finally, like when we're talking about community resistance, we I think it, we have to also think about the 2020 rebellions um, and think about really interesting ways that, for example, this logic of austerity um, evaporated suddenly. Suddenly, when we were told, we've been told that there's no hiring lines for this or for that, there have been Dozens, if not a hundred hiring lines, cluster hires for Latinx studies, black studies, decolonial studies, all of these things. Um, and I think we should understand that this is both a containment effort, but also something that, of course, should be pushed, deepened, radicalized. And it's only because this broader community, right, this international, transnational um, community um, in the university, beyond the university, entered into motion, struggled, and began to shift that terrain um, of academic, you know, possibility as well. Thank you all. So this se segues very nicely into my um, first question uh, for you all, and I'll ask you to bear with me because it is a very, very long question, but I will get there. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to kind of tackle this, um, this, you know, point that I think comes up in the book, but Gio, that you also kind of leave us with in, in your comments, which is this kind of uh, duality, right, that, that we confront in, in the university. So many of us inside and outside of academia have a tendency to view the university nostalgically or through rose-colored glasses, seeing it as somehow outside of these exploitative power relations, this structure, uh, every other aspect of our lives, right? 
so I want to bring in uh, the essay, Abolitionist University Studies and Imitation by uh, Abby Boggs, Eli Meyerhoff, Nick Mitchell, and uh, Zach Schwartz-Weinstein. And in it, they note that in a U.S. context, the discussion of the university and attempts to fight neoliberalization, as, as you point out, Gio, are haunted by a nostalgia for a so-called uh, golden era of, of the university during the post-war moment of uh, state and federal support and expansion of, of higher education. So they know in the essay, they say, quote, the story neglects the ways that this expansion was underwritten by militarized funding priorities, nationalist agendas, and an incorporative project of counterinsurgency. And I think this speaks directly to this kind of boom in the wake of the, the 2020 uprisings. So in other words, what they're saying in, in their essays is the university doesn't exist outside of these uh, harmful and coercive apparatuses of, of state power. And Lorhan, in your book, you make a similar point when you say, uh, quote, those of us who are made to unbelong experience the violence of exclusion everywhere. My unbelonging to the university comes from structures of colonialism and racism that continue to shape our in institutions to date, the nation, our schools, our justice system. They're ingrained in the fabric of our society and therefore to change, we need more than inclusion and diversity, we need revolution and rebirth, end quote. So during a moment when education is under attack from the right, and many are working to protect the university by focusing on the good it produces, how do we avoid falling into this trap of nostalgia or of promoting uh, a historical version of the university that occludes or fails to acknowledge how it's embedded within these larger power uh, relations, the structure society. So um, I, I don't have an order, but I don't know if anybody feels uh, particularly uh, moved to, to respond, but uh, that I'll leave it there. There's a way in which we and I said this at the beginning in my intro, we have been socialized to believe that there is something superior about the work that we do. That somehow the fact that I am a professor is better or more arduous or more in the service of humanity than the work my mother did in a factory while raising four kids. Um, and I think that one of the, one of the things that that the work that we do <laughs> needs to clarify it is first, this is work, right? This is this is labor. And Ngio was talking about the ways in which the neoliberalization of the university and the way in which the adjuncting practices have clarified that that for us. It's it's very much about making profit, amassing high endowments, um, and maximizing money for investors. And so it if we, we need to clarify that this is exactly how the university is functioning, particularly in the United States. And once we clarify that and we, and we, and we sort of enter the conversation on, with that clear understanding, then we need to ask ourselves the question, then what do we do next? How do we, as, as people who are very much like Marti would say, living in the belly of the beast, but who do not want to be um, contributing to this neoliberal practices, and yet we're being paid by the university. We are very much in within, right? As scholars, as teachers, as tenured track 
or even adjunct faculty? Like, how do we create spaces of freedom within systems that are not free? And and that is what I that I, what I'm asking myself and what I'm trying to ask uh, with with the book. How do we navigate um, this? microcosm of the world which is the university in which all the isms are reproduced in a way that can create a better environment for our students um, that can enact positive changes in the world what recognizing that this is not an ideal space that this is indeed a violent colonial racist elitist and all the other fucked up stuff that's going on in the world are reproduced within the university. And some people are affected more than others. So it's about recognizing our own complicity with the systems. What am I doing that is making it worse for adjuncts? What am I doing as a, as a senior white faculty that is making it worse for faculty of color? What am I doing as someone who works in a recognized discipline for people who are interdisciplinary work? Um, and interdisciplinary, uh, who are interdisciplinary scholars who may not have a home, which is the case for most of us who are ethnic studies scholars and never have a department, we're floating, right? So thinking about the multiple ways in which we as faculty contribute, sustain, or just simply are complicit with our silence, and then finding ways to create spaces of belonging, spaces that make our students and our junior colleagues and our our staff and people who are around us feel safer. And I think that begins with sincerity. For me, that space is the classroom. I cannot control what is going to happen in the dean's office, but I sure as hell can control what happens in my classroom, from the syllabus and how I design it, to how I run it, to how I make my students feel, to the kinds of fights that I, that I take on to make sure that the students in my class have what they need and deserve. And so we, I think we need to work together across campuses to think about, it, about how we make this better for our students, for our colleagues, for ourselves. We have to. We have to. It's, otherwise, this, this, this is just doomed. Uh, there is no other point in working within the systems if we're not going to try to do something different with the resources that we have at hand. And I think those of us who are in elite institutions with high endowment have a bigger responsibility to do more. Joe, be quick. <laughs> be quick. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, yeah, I think this, this question of nostalgia is, is, is true. I think it's also, again, important to understand how much has changed, you know, in, you know, since in the post-war period, right? Again, we need to keep our bifocals on in a sense, in this, you know, in terms of understanding the deep structural, uh, you know, functions of the university and this real dramatic onslaught that emerged through precisely through uh, sort of like military funding through U.S. government funding of the sort of behavioralist turn and the social sciences and the quantification of everything and the sort of, you know, emphasis on statistics and predictability, which has dramatically undermined the humanities and transformed how we think even in the university. And this more recent process of radically neoliberalizing, you know, dismantling elements uh, of the university. And we need to focus on both in part because 
that's where the nostalgia comes from and it's real, right? Like it, there were, there were things that were very good about particularly public universities, you know, um, of course they're radically exclusionary. Um, and you know, but, and this gets to the whole, you know, problem with sort of boomer logic. Um, but, um, what I want to say about the nostalgia is that we also understand that this is a part of a dynamic, right? And, and this nostalgia is not just false, right? Or wrong or a misunderstanding of the university. It's also the cause of a whole bunch of political barriers that we confront, namely the way that, and Lord Hill just pointed to this, the way that particularly tenured faculty understand their role and their function, right? The fact that they consider themselves to be a sort of special class um, that is disconnected from the world of politics, disconnected from pressures of the social, um, and able to operate in this sort of floating space, right? And this becomes very, very real when things happen on campus, right? When there are political struggles against white supremacy, against, you know, the legacies of slavery and colonialism. Um, and all of those movements or individuals or individual faculty members are suddenly understood as problems, right? As individual problems, as rocking the boat, as creating waves where there were no waves, right? Because the idea is that this is a safe, you know, sort of like stable space, which it isn't. It's, of course, completely riven by all of the sort of contradictions of the, of the broader society. And so it's, I think it's important to understand that that nostalgia is a part of why it's so hard for us to create solidarity from tenured faculty down to adjunct faculty, down to workers on campus, down to students, and, you know, and understand that as a, a sort of broader whole. Uh, well, I don't Thinking about my reality, which I, we don't have a financing, financial investment from big, you know, corporations. Most of the money from the public universe are public money. So I think that uh, even if it's really important and valid when social movements, for example, in Brazil, criticize the university, and it's true for being a machine to reproduce inequalities in Brazil and produce policies that exclude black and poor populations. I still think that the university, like the own name says, have to reflect the society that we live in. Uh, making a reference to what I said in the beginning, is impossible, for example, to produce science in a country like Brazil with a black majority if black people are not listening. In this, you know, when this knowledge and science has been produced. So although this institute, we have a paradox, this institution is a machine to produce inequality in the Brazilian elites, we have this group of people who wants to enter and change science in the way that we perceive the society. So that's why it's in, in the same time, that's why I'm understanding the, how I understand this nostalgia of these people who say, so we had the better scientists, we had a Brazilian elite is in the university or the university is not for the kids of the dormant, it's for a Brazilian elite who historically was, for example, producing um, eugenics to improve the Brazilian population inside the university. So when the social movements and even the students bring these realities 
to the classroom, like, should we stay in this place? Should we trust this place? Should we contest and compete this place with the elites and with the professors? What is the sense of being questioned in the syllabus because we are the minority in this place? So I tell my students and my colleagues, we should compete in this place because this place is public. Because they are public investment in this place. And from this place, in this, inside of this place, are produced the science and the public policy and the knowledge meant they will impact our lives. And because after having a degree from this place, we have we can have a better jobs in a really pragmatic, you know, way of thinking about the role of the university. We will have a certificate that we make us and our families have a better jobs, you know, and we can, you know, collectively build a better plan in a better perspective of this society. So this is how I would answer this question. And if I could just add that um, this nostalgia, both, I guess, in the, in the global north and the global south, it's grounded on white supremacy. It is, at the end of the day, nostalgia for the kind of university that we envision to be the carrier of knowledge. And that knowledge is nothing like what we produce, right? What those of us in this space produce. And so if we were to think about the kind, Lucia, listening to you, the kind of um, intersections or the commonalities that exist between uh, the US university and the Latin American university is you know, the desire for colonial ways of knowing. In the Dominican Republic, where I'm from, I would not be able to obtain a job as a professor, not with a PhD, uh, not with all, all my whatever publications. I would not because my work is considered um, troublemaking. Um, I don't cite enough European people. So when Borders was translated into Spanish, I was under attack by white Dominican men who considered my work to be pro-Haitian and, um, and not worthy of their intellectual engagement. And so the way in which we, we think about those challenges existing in places like the U.S. University, but in fact, they're not just our challenges here. They, they, they are challenges that exist across the globe, even in places where the majority of the population is indeed of color. And that is really troublesome. Yeah, thank you, Luciana and Lorja, because I think the point that you're making is really clarifying in how we talk about this nostalgia too, because there's a left nostalgia that's a nostalgia for a time where access was increasing, where there was more funding, uh, this kind of notion of the university as an engine of social uh, mobility, right? This kind of nostalgia for that. And 
you know, Luciana, I think what you're pointing us to, and Lorje also with your comments, is there's also a right-wing nostalgia, right? And that's the moment that we're actually finding ourselves in, in these kind of right-wing attacks, is this notion of what the university should be and what, what its goal should be, which is this reproduction of elite values, this reproduction of um, ideas of whiteness, of knowledge that's grounded in these kind of colonial um, epistemologies, right? And, you know, Luciana, I think also what you point to in the Brazilian example is also nostalgia for the pre-quota university, right? This idea when actually access was incredibly shut off and, 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 reflected in, in apartheid of um, a majority Black country being shut out, right? Um, so so I think that that's an important kind of, you know, I think point for us to, to think about, right? There's a way in which there's a, a way in which the left and, and it can fall into a nostalgia that actually includes what's been the structuring the right is very clear on what the university has always been, right? And, and that's what their kind of nostalgia is for the pre kind of uh, affirmative action or quota, the pre uh, queer studies, the pre ethnic studies kind of era, right? Um, where there was just more limited access. So I think this is actually an incredibly clarifying um, conversation that helps us actually think about what this, this right wing attack on a global scale is on, on education is looking for, right? What they're, they're kind of aiming for. So I wanted to, uh, you know, we've kind of been touching on this around the question of adjunctification uh, and precar- increasing precarity in the university. But I wanted to ask, you know, a, a large part of the story in the book centers around the ways that the university serves as site, a site of um, institutional violence. And Lorhia, you know, uh, quote, institutional violence manifests. And this quote was, I mean, when I read it, I was was talking to colleagues about it, it knocked me out. And it's one of those things that you know, but until you see someone actually articulate it, there's something very powerful about seeing it in writing. But you say institutional violence manifests in multiple insidious ways, denial of equal treatment, abuses and labor practices, unequal pay, unfair amount of labor, microaggressions, and most of all, cruelty. So tenure, as we've been discussing in the lore of secure employment uh, in in the university and in an increasingly precarious labor market plays an enormous role in reproducing this institutional violence that uh, is so intrinsic to to the university. In particular, functions, and Gio, you, you discussed this in your comment, as a disciplining technology um, that quiets discussions of institutional violence and threatens the livelihoods of radical and progressive faculty if they speak up in ways that the university deems uncivil or unprofessional. And of course, this trickles down to our students in, in a, a myriad of ways. At the same time, we're seeing tenure and secure employment Uh, come under attack uh, by the right as they work to chip away at faculty governance and essentially create blacklist on college campuses. So I wanted to hear from you all how we can make sense of this and think about our struggles to create a more open and liberatory, uh, more open and liberatory educational spaces on the one hand and how we fight against um, these attacks on tenure as a way of um, introducing more precarity and gag rules on campuses at the same time that we acknowledge the incredible violence that's inherent in the tenure system, right? The ways in which it breeds competitiveness and exclusion, so. Can I say something really quick? 
<laughs> I think that first of all, we have to see ourselves as workers, Marisol, because that is still a lot of people in academia who really embrace this idea that we are, a, I don't know, being an intellectual elite is the same of being a financial elite or elite of everything. I'm saying this because sometimes we can have the feeling that this is obvious, that we are workers. Uh, but it's like we are a cast of people who, scholars who come from popular classes and the scholars who really come from the elite, but even some people who come from popular classes have the feeling, okay, I reached this place, now I'm, I'm part of another position in the society. But I think if we unify our voices with other workers, and the conditions of stable jobs in the world nowadays, if we look what is happening and we see ourselves as workers, I think a lot of the things can change or at least we can be stronger, you know? Uh, I'm saying this because we see ourselves, for, ex for example, during the pandemic in Brazil, um, school professors, teachers, Teachers went back to classes before the professors of universities. And we now I'm doing a criticism to my to my professional group. And we stay quiet while the high school and the fundamental teachers were black to classes. And we still have colleagues saying, oh, we have no conditions to come go back to class because of the pandemic. Although we had the vaccine as educators, so we passed in the front of a lot of people, including the, the professors, because we had to, you know, we had a large public and we had the classes. So it was evident to me that some of us, a lot of us don't see ourselves as, as workers and we are, see ourselves as these elites. So I think the own work conditions and the security of our jobs will be at least the struggle will be strong. And if we see ourselves as work, as workers, you know, even as educators, as other educational workers, uh, as the same category. I think that's a great point. And I think it was also very interesting, and this differs, I think, dramatically in different contexts, but the ways in which COVID created moments in which professors did sort of see themselves as workers, finally, right? Because they were like, oh, wait, like, I can also, like public school teachers, organize so that we don't need to go in person or organize around safety, organize around keeping, you know, ourselves safe, the students safe. And there was at least the opening for a potential collective level of consciousness, I think, I approach this conversation very jaded when it comes to tenured faculty members, uh, you know, and, and I was someone who, who came under attack with tenure and yet tenured faculty could not see their own 
interests in my case, right? Um, and again, it's not so much about my case, about the fact that if, if they can't see solidarity with other tenured faculty who are pushed out of academia, how could they see solidarity with adjunct faculty or with students or with workers? And it's just very, very daunting the way that this logic, I think, uh, you know, permeates. And so ultimately, I think when we're struggling for things like keeping tenure, defending tenure, expanding tenure lines, for example, we're going to be in a situation where we're doing that you know, to to save and rescue people who will not show solidarity with other struggles, unfortunately. Um, that's not the answer to the problem. And the answer is, of course, to expand those solidarities, to to build struggles, you know, again, with workers on campus, with students on campus, with, you know, different sectors of the student body of the faculty, um, and try to break down those boundaries wherever we can um, as a way of breaking down these logics, uh, you know, and as a way of, of creating the possibility for something different, again, within the university, beyond its walls, relationships with outside, you know, forms of education, popular education projects and other things. Um, and all of this, of course, on the backdrop of fighting an incredibly uphill struggle to, to reclaim what little of that, you know, not the nostalgia, but what little of the good, you know, that, that was, that was possible previously, right. And push back on this powerful wave of, uh, you know, of right-wing uh, transformation. I think in the same vein that we should work uh, to create solidarity with, with other workers, whether it is within the, the university or across as educators, I think we need to do better at, at creating community and solidarity with, uh, with our students. Uh, there is a way in which um, the students and faculty, especially faculty and the tenure stream are separated from, from students and encouraged to sort of create that distance. And for me, as a first-gen faculty of color who felt like an alien at times with my peers, with my colleagues, I found a home um, in, in my students. And so it was, I can't stress that enough. I think uh, a lot of students really don't understand um, how anything that has to do with tenure and tenure and track. I spent so much time um, in the classroom just kind of going through, this is what the difference between a lecturer and a tenure professor is. And no, it's not the same when you're taking a Latinx studies class from an adjunct. This is how that's going to affect you when you're, when you're trying to get a letter and that person will not be there next semester. And it's always like, what? What do you mean? Because typically this, those are their favorite professors, right? Uh, the people who are uh, in, in, in precarious uh, positions. So finding ways to create alliances with students um, to find better uh, circumstances for learning together, I think that's, that's really also key as we think about the future of, of the university. Thank you all. So I just want to send a quick reminder to the audience that if you have questions for any of the panelists, anything you want, uh, burning questions for us to kind of discuss, please drop them in the chat um, on YouTube and we will answer them on here. So I want to ask one question and, and I'll give, uh, Lucian, I'll give you a heads up that I'm going to start with, start with you for this one. But um, 
you know, one of the things we've been talking about, and I think just speaking to this kind of current moment that we find ourselves in is, you know, gender studies and ethnic studies professors make up a very, very small percentage of, of the university. And, and that's by design, right? The ways in which these kind of fields of knowledge and these scholars have been uh, forcefully minoritized. Uh, but if you kind of watch the media and listen to right-wing talking points, you would think the entire university is made up of these folks, right? They are the uh, overwhelming majority of uh, folks experiencing uh, hostility and targeting um, from both the public, um, conservative sectors of the public, as well as legislators, right? Um, aiming to kind of keep slashing budgets from uh, universities. So I'm thinking over the pan or thinking about the panic over CRT, critical race theory here in the United States and queer studies as well. And in Brazil, I'm thinking about the kind of panic over gender ideology um, that has been raging for the past couple of years. So how do we make sense of this kind of, I'm wondering if you can give, um, and Luciana also um, knowing that many of our uh, audience are here located in, in the US, um, if you could talk about what's happening in the case of Brazil, but for all of us, if we can um, talk about how do we make sense of this and how do we mobilize to um, protect ourselves and our colleagues, right, who are coming under attack, um, considering the ways in which these fields and these scholars um, and the students who study this are so minoritized within the university? Thank you, Marisol. Well, I know um, most of the professors in Brazil who have a, a stability, what is the equivalent for the tenure in the United States. Although the majority um, who have stability are not black women, are not trans people, are not in, in general people, people from the LGBT community in Brazil, when we do have stability, we have more freedom to talk and to build our syllabus during our classes. Even if we don't have uh, financial support for our research, we have uh, autonomy to decide how we're gonna teach. Although we have a lot of colleagues around the country in Brazil, who have been facing a lot of attacks. This happened a lot during the pandemic, during the online classes. Classes that were talking about feminism are a great target um, because now in Brazil, the extreme right believes in something called gender ideology, like you said. Like we are creating, even myself, I don't know, very well what they mean by gender ideology <laughs> is if we are talking about gender inequality because it don't exist or we are questioning gender inequality which is something that should not be questioned or both <laughs> so because of the instability we have more um freedom to talk about um, these issues. Um, the thing is, the stable jobs are more and more precarious, and the positions are more uh, scarce uh, for stable jobs in Brazil. 
So in as much in uni, in Brazilian universities, so in as much as the stable positions that we call concursos are in a smaller quantity, so people who will be selected will not be in general the black ones, the indigenous ones, the trans ones. Will be those people who are just waiting for their position to be, you know open, the better job is to be open. And for several reasons, black women, for example, will not be the selected ones. That's why it's so important in Brazil, like now the affirmative action positions be open, not only for students, but also for professors. You know, it's really common in Brazil, you have a whole department that don't have one single black professor. So that's why what I what I see that is um, equivalent to the situation in the United States is about this stable black people have access to the stable jobs. So we have more freedom to, you know, uh, advance in our careers and have more freedom to bring these syllables and um programs, then we talk about gender, then we talk about other perspectives of teaching and of a society in public universities. I always talking about public universities because the private ones have another other compromises with you know other interests and other groups. So I'm talking about the public universities because it's the public body. And they are the better ones in terms of research and investment. I don't know if I answer your question. I was trying to adapt, you know, the, the, I don't know if I explained very well. No, that was, that was great. And I think this, you know, brings us back to this question of it also as a job, right. And, and fighting for greater access within the, the job for uh, stability and a humane workplace right is we that's i think what you're pointing us to is these kind of um factors that are shutting uh black and indigenous and queer faculty out in in brazil right and the way it then links to these larger kind of um panics right over subject matter and gender ideology and race and and everything so no that was fantastic thank you uh geo lorgia please feel free to jump in I, I would just say that it's also back to, you know, very much about the understanding or the, the really the knowledge that the way that we've been doing learning, the way that we've been teaching is wrong, um, is racist, is anti-Black, um, it's, it's not the way we should be doing it and recognizing that uh, that these fields of knowledge, not just not just people who are racialized or identified as queer and black and, and indigenous, but the, the the knowledge that comes from these communities, what we call what I would call critical ethnic studies, has the potential to do something different. And those who are in power don't want that. And so, even though we're still fighting fifty plus years later to have ethnic studies programs and departments in, let's say, in the Northeast of the United States, because we recognize the potential that it has for 
liberatory learning, we are finding ourselves um, with roadblocks, not just in terms of like the, the outside politics, but within the walls of the of the university. So that we, on the one hand, have this lip service to diversity, inclusion, uh, racial justice, and all of the memos that we all had after uh, George Floyd was murdered and this massive um, hiring that we saw across the United States, but that does not translate into actual structural changes at the university that center the lives of indigenous people. Right, so we have people reading land acknowledgments in universities that do not have indigenous studies programs and don't have a single Native American scholar, and and they get away with this. They get away with this, and I want to call bullshit. Yeah, I mean, really, just to to, to build on and, and echo a lot of that, and to say that, I mean, but partly in, in in part because of this sort of defensive rhetoric that emerged around the critical race theory ethnic studies, um, you know, narrative, which was, I think, quite rightly, you know, an attempt to fight off the far right by saying, listen, we're not what you're saying that we are, we're not this, we're not that. But part of what was being said is we're not dangerous, right? And I and I think it's really important to understand that critical race theory and ethnic studies should be dangerous to the these institutional structures. That was the point of them, that when, you know, when black studies emerges out of insurgency, the point was not to build a siloed off uh, department with no relation to other departments, right? The point was to help to radically transform the entirety of that structure, right? That's what ethnic studies is and, and you know, and, and needs to be critical ethnic studies. And, you know, of course, the administrative siloing is a part of that. The, again, the false scarcity is a part of that. But also the logics, right, of, uh, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, academic respectability um, creates a situation which many people employed in these interdisciplinary spaces, uh, you know, wish they were in real disciplines or, you know, feel like they're, you know, tr- not partly because they're not treated as the equals of those in real disciplines, but partly through inter- internalized logics where, uh, you know, where interdisciplinary work is also not understood to be serious, right? Where interdisciplinary methods are sort of devalorized. And so we, I think, really need to think about the fact that these do need to be really sort of like, you know, uh, plastic explosives, right, in in the foundations of these institutions to help really, you know, help radically transform them. And, and if they're not, we get, I think, what we're seeing, right, which is even when the numbers are increased, right, it's done in, in you know, very limited ways, very contained ways, in an attempt to avoid, if at all possible, any radical transformation of the institutions themselves. Thank you all. So we have some questions from the audience and I want to make sure we um, have a chance to get to you, but one actually relates to the last point, Gio, that, that you were making, but um, you know, I'll throw it out to all the panelists, but I don't know if you want to respond. Uh, so the question says, what do you think about a transdisciplinary approach of producing knowledge between different disciplines in the university as a means to combat neoliberalism in higher ed? And Lorhi, I think this is also something that you touch on in, in the book. So I'm wondering if, if you all want to respond to this question. I would say absolutely. I think I don't think it's an easy question, right? Because I think we don't know what those transdisciplinary methods or approaches or things look like. But part of the problem is that we don't take them seriously to begin with, right? Is that we, you know, we don't 
you know, we treat them as un, you know, as non-disciplines, you know, we treat them as, I mean, that's, you know, good and liberating kind of way, um, but treated as non-serious work, treated as, you know, all of the things that Lorca documents when it comes to tenure files, right, or when it comes to the criticisms of um, the work of scholars of color in particular, right, where it's not serious, it's too poppy, it's too uh, mainstream, and yet in the same breath, administrators want anything that's mainstream, right, and anything that really reaches the public, but they want it filtered through these very, you know, specific and strict, um, you know, methodological, um, you know, frameworks. I think method and methodology is a big part of this conversation that, that maybe people don't, you know, pay a lot of attention to, but the ways in which methods and which methods are taken seriously, um, you know, provides not only a constraint on who is welcome in the academy, but also what kind of work and what kind of effect it could have, right? And the way that methods have been, you know, really winnowed down by behavioralism, by, you know, econometric, you know, statistical analysis. And again, the fact that when we see and we talk about the decline in the humanities and the decline in in, in all of these um, disciplines, what we're talking about is the decline in non-profitable disciplines, right? And decline in non-operational, non-weaponizable disciplines and the rise of those that are directly functional to capital and directly functional to sort of U.S. imperial military goals as well. And it goes back to this idea, this nostalgia that we were talking about earlier and this resistance to um, making room uh, for new ways of understanding, not really new questions, old questions. And what does it mean to ask the same old questions from a different perspective? And what does it mean to center the life of Black women when you can quote unquote, find them in the archives. How do, how are you looking? Um, because I find them no problem. So it's, it's exactly, um, this resistance to allowing work to follow questions rather than disciplines. Um, and while at the same time, young people are teaching us how to do this every day. Um, and we're not, we're just not listening. This is how our students are learning. This is how their lives is being formed, but in interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary ways. But we're res- we're resisting and we're forcing them to do something that no longer serves them. So I have a um, another question here um, in the chat, uh, which I think is is an important reminder for us, right, to think about uh, education that that's coming under attack beyond university walls, which is. Uh, one of the questions is how can we build solidarity when incarcerated and formerly incarcerated students, right? So one of the things that we we can think about in this period of neoliberalization is the incredible winnowing down of any uh, opportunities for for education uh, for for incarcerated students, right? Or the incredible difficulty of getting access to materials, right? And we can think about our colleague, Garrett Felber, who uh, came under attack for the work that he was doing um, in getting access and materials to um, uh, incarcerated people and, and bringing them into university spaces. So I, I'm curious how we can amplify, I guess, this conversation we're having to actually think through these connections, right? How do we, how do we show solidarity with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated uh, students? Uh, I think uh, one of the, th- the things that we can do is to facilitate the access 
to those students to knowledge mint we through we have something called extension programs that we could take the university to other spaces like prisons but I'm a historian I'm a, I'm a history professor I think that another thing that we can do I will talk about my field is to um, build a curriculum that show the history of important leaders and activists whose imprisonment was part of their lives. It's not the people who are in prison is not criminal, somebody who did bad things for the society. And we reproduce by reproducing or by silence idea that reinforces the notion, notion. The people who are in jail is because they did something wrong and evil to everybody. You know, people who made very important political changes were threatened or, you know, spend a part of their lives in prison or in jail or were attacked by the police or the, by the judiciary system. I think that this is also a really important thing. Lorja talk about the archives. And when we study history, a lot of experiences, for example, of enslaved people are registered in criminal documents. So how, you know, important part of the society, we know the history because the only record that we have is in the criminal, you know, record, the criminal documents. So I think that this is an important contribution to Yes, I mean, very much in conjunction with that, I, you know, I, I would say that I think, first of all, we need to understand that the transformation of the university has been anchored to the transformation of mass incarceration, right? And then we think about like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's redrawing of the sort of geography of development to center the prison. This is part of what is revealed, right, is that these are all, you know, uh, you know, attempts to sort of fix, um, you know, crises of capital accumulation, right? And this is what's happening when we see the, the sort of dismantling of the university. This is what's happening geographically, territorially in terms of property and real estate. It's what's happening with the military industrial complex. And it's what's happening, of course, and with the prison at the center of it. And so I think understanding and relocating prison, you know, and systems of mass incarceration to the center of this story is crucial, right? It's not like we've got the universities over here and we're trying to, uh, bring education, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to inmates, it's the fact that, you know, that incarceration is part and parcel of what we see in the system of education, uh, as well. And more than that, I think it's an incredibly potent space for theorization, thinking, and of course, insurgency and rebellion, right. And and the ways in which these are crucial to what we're dealing with today. And, and, you know, there are I think lots of things that we could do. One is, of course, to increase access to uh, not just education, right, in a in a in a sort of uh, you know as a gift, right, to to sort of inmates, um, but for you know processes of building relationships and connections between ourselves, between our students, um, and you know incarcerated people. I think that's one of the most transformative things that particularly relatively privileged students can encounter um, is, you know, the the sort of inside out programs, the ways in which, you know, um, different prison programs are being developed. Um, you know, of course, we can fight to restore federal funding to prison education, not that that's going to be a, a particularly easy fight. Um, and we can fight to build institutions outside of 
uh, outside of and in conjunction with the university. Um, you know, there I say this, and there are lots of abolitionist organizations here in, in Philly and in Pennsylvania where, you know, formerly incarcerated people are doing political organization, political education, and mobilizing, um, you know, all, you know, as part of a broad abolitionist sort of movement as well. So we have a question here um, about the role of university fundraising and donor expectations in enabling or limiting uh, the work that happens in university. So, uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the things that perhaps, you know, Lorhea, you talked about uh, tenure as being something that you constantly have to kind of explain to students because there's an aspect of it that's very insider baseball, right? Unless you're like in the system, it's actually incredibly difficult to understand. And that's by design part of it, right? Is to precisely obfuscate the the process. And, you know, there's a way in which the relationship between fundraising and donors and universities also functions in that way. Or, you know, I, I taught at UT between the legislator <laughs> and what they want and, and the university, right? For, for those of us who are at public universities uh, also, right, are not kind of immune to this. So I'm wondering if for, you know, folks who might be unfamiliar with the context and these relationships, if um, you all could unpa- unpack them a, a bit, I guess. If I'm, if I'm completely honest, I'm still unable to explain how it works. It, it is so much of uh, a black box at times, and it feels like um, the way in which um, gifts and particular accounts um, are donated into uh, departments, units, universities, um, it's so secretive. I, I just recently had a conversation about um, a gift that uh, that exists in the department that I work in, and no one seems to be able to answer who the who the donor is. Uh, and all we know is what the restrictions are. Uh, and so, the the way in which this gift set agendas um, and uh, tell us how we should do the work that we want to do, the intellectual work that we want to do, the work we want to do for our students. Um, it's it's really concerning, um, and um, one of the hopes that I, that I have for 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 the future is that we are able to insist um, on 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 clarity and transparency at all levels, uh, including uh, including the, the, the donations and how not only how they arrive, but um, how to. Um, how do we as, as, as faculty get to decide? Um, I, I, I found a couple, I found out a couple of times um, how certain positions that I had been offered were uh, results of donations. And sometimes those donations um, were not kosher, right? And were done by people that I wouldn't want to be associated with my name. And so not knowing, imagine finding yourself um in a, in a position in which, in which you are um, the result of some really uh, horrible <laughs> um, fundraising practices that contradict the kind of work that you do. And I think there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes um, at that level uh, in the university and we should be as faculty, especially those of us who are tenure, demanding more transparency. Um, I certainly don't want my name associated with um, any shady business. 
Yeah, and just to, I mean, just to just maybe just slightly repeat, but make, maybe clear, make clear something that I said earlier. There are situations, I won't speak specifically, but situations that exist in extreme situations in which private donors threaten to withdraw millions of dollars from universities if they don't get what they want. And what they want could involve disciplining students, putting the students in line for rowdy protests, um, or they can involve firing faculty, getting rid of problem faculty, defunding programs, a whole range of things. And this exists and this is real. And, and I think um, it's, I mean, not only is it really, you know, of course, you know, frightening, but it also just doesn't fit with this idealized image we have of academia. And I think the first thing is to say, this is how academia is increasingly operating, even public universities, right? Um, and again, aside from that, the creation of right-wing spaces within academic departments, within universities, think tanks and other things, which have their, which buy their own hiring lines. Um, and again, we, we think of these hiring lines as being academically justified, but in some cases they're not, right? They're left to um, the whims of these uh, private donors who have veto power over how these private privatized little spaces operate. And I think we should reveal these. I think we should expose them. We should, you know, as Lorky was mentioning, find out who's funding them, emphasize which sort of right-wing think tank, you know, dark money, you know, sources are being funneled into what universities. Um, and, and do so because, again, they're, what they're doing is, is they're creating a, um, a sort of aura of academicity, right, or respectability for what are overt attempts to infiltrate and subvert, you know, education. And I just want to shout out really quickly also the work that is primarily student-led of groups like Uncoke My Campus, which looked at like Coke Brother dark money that was going into, uh, you know, exactly I think what you're talking about, uh, these kind of like fake think tanks that were popping up all around uh, academic campuses that were essentially aimed at dismantling <laughs> education, right? And uh, pr uh, proposing or... Um, championing these kind of right-wing causes, right? And so students, I think this is one of the moments where as faculty, we can actually learn a lot from our students in the work and the bravery that they show uh, in taking the, these matters uh, on kind of head first. And, you know, I also wanted to say, and um, Lucien, I don't know if you you're, you want to uh, uh, also uh, pop in, but, you know, as someone who currently teaches at a public institution and taught at a public institution. I mean, uh, the kind of effects that the threats coming from legislators, state legislators on, on public institutions is very in line with what's happening with private donors, right? And if we think about the infiltration of private money into politics, right? Even if you're at a public institution, that is deeply influencing um, the kind of threats and veiled and, and not so veiled towards um, pulling funding, right? And we saw this in, in Texas with the anti-CRT bills that, um, you know, targeted law schools, that targeted uh, um Black studies departments, ethnic studies departments, right? And the ways in which faculty were actually forced to scramble, right? And departments are forced to scramble uh, to think about what does that mean for them? How will uh, they make up for shortfalls in funding, right? And this is, again, another disciplining um, technique, right? So, you know, we can think about actually the, the public and private um, divisions that we think about in public or in higher education as, as that that thins it out if we think about how much private money is in 
in in politics, right? And the way that that then influences um, public education as well. So, Lucien, I don't know if you want to add anything. Um, just a really quick, the equivalent that I see for this is when, for example, the federal government created something called priority areas to invest money. So the humanities that has a more um, progressive and critical point of view about the politics of, especially this government, that's extremely right government will be more definanced than other areas who are more compromised with, you know, the thoughts and the way of it, you know, the ideology of this government. Or even some universities who, um, for example, we have universities that universities that have a partnership with African universities and bring more black students, or universities that are located in more in in areas uh, like the northeast of Brazil, they receive less votes that this government receives less votes than the south of Brazil. And then this in Brazil, the, the president points who will be the, the um, uh, provost of the public universities. So the president is the one who will decide, you know, the person who will control the money although it's public money. So this is the Kiva and the humanities suffer more from this distribution of the money. So we have the equivalent for this too. And of course, involve corporations and private money, in, like Lord just said, in a way that is not transparent and we don't know in a way or another, for sure. Thank you. So, um, on that note, <laughs> I think we're at time, but, um, you know, I just want to say that, you know, I think, again, if you haven't uh, checked out the book, please, you know, grab, grab the book. It's, it's a really phenomenal, uh, really valuable, really uh, a powerful text, you know, and I think one that um, hopefully folks will find to be a uh, lodestar in how we navigate the current kind of educational system in this moment of um, attacks on, on education uh, that, that we find ourselves in. But, you know, I think hopefully the kind of takeaway from the conversation today, although I think we diagnosed a lot of the ills with with academia and higher education is also, you know, this question, which, you know, you pose in the book, which is how do we care for each other, right? And how do we build these um, liberatory spaces and, and find our people, right? And, uh, you know, I think this book does a really excellent job of helping us to identify um, how to build those spaces and how to find your people um, in the system and ultimately how to transform it. So um, thank you so much uh, to those of you tuning in uh, for joining us. Um, thank you so much again to Haymarket for uh, hosting and also to NACLA um, for making this uh, event happen. And uh, thank you, Lorgia, for this uh, tremendous book. Thank you, Luciana and uh, and and Gio for being here and, and being in conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.